This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm speaking to Felix Gillette, who is the co-author of It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. He wrote this book with John Koblen. Felix has a day job at Bloomberg. John's at the New York Times. Welcome, Felix. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. Um, people who listen to this podcast have heard me and other people talk about HBO yeah. and AT&T and Time Warner and mm-hmm. Warner Discovery for a long time. Yep. What made you want to tackle HBO as a particular subject? I think it was a number of things. One was, you know, working as a media reporter at the kind of the confluence of entertainment and media. HBO, you know, when I started reporting, was going through this spectacular birth in the 2000s, the peak HBO time. And I was always curious how it got there. Um, this and, is that Sopranos, yeah, Sex Sopranos, Sex and the City, all that, and you know, Sunday nights by, are the big event night. Yeah, and by 2019, you could see that the era of cable and satellite television was kind of coming to an end, and the new streaming world was emerging, and it was you know very unclear at that point how HBO would make that transition. So those two things, kind of the rise of this cultural juggernaut, that story, and then watching it go through this transition. Would it survive? Would it, you know, pull a Kodak and just get totally clobbered? Was it, you know, the innovator's dilemma? Um, and those factors made it very appealing. So 2019, mm-hmm. uh, you have to remember now, HBO is part of what's then called Warner Media, which right. is then at that point finally had been sold to AT&T. The deal yep. had been done a couple of years earlier, mm-hmm. held up in court. Right. There was a lot of chin stroking and teeth gnashing about what would become of HBO right. um, when it was owned by the phone company. Yes. Flash forward a couple of years. Yeah. It's been sold to Discovery, yep. whole other story. In between that, there's a pandemic. And also, while you're reporting this out with John Koblen, you've also got someone else writing basically the same history, Jim right. Miller, who's been in mm-hmm. this podcast before, to talk about his book, which is an oral history. Right. Um, What's it like to write a competitive book about a giant, juicy subject in a pandemic? I think, you know, any story I've ever worked on as a media reporter, if it's a good story, there's multiple people telling that story. And the competition is great. I think it's terrific. It makes you better. It makes you sharper. It makes you decide what your angle is going to be, how you're going to differentiate your work from the competition. And I think with John and I, it was clear that, first of all, stylistically – we come from a very different school. This is a narrative nonfiction story. It takes all the tools of you know that you can have. It's we care a lot about the writing. We care a lot about the character development, the foreshadowing, the symbolism, the pacing, the tone, all of that. We spend an immense of time uh, working on the writing to make sure that this is a really we want it to be a page turner. We want it to be as compelling to the reader as a you know a good hour HBO drama. And, uh, you know, so that right there, I think, makes it different than an oral history, a very different format. And I think also John and I were confident that we would, you know, really dig into uh, the technology challenges, uh, the business challenges. I think early on, we decided that you couldn't really tell the story of HBO going into the streaming era with all, without also really telling the story of Netflix and developing Netflix they're, they're as... They're really tethered. Yeah, they are. And... It, you know, they really bring each other out in interesting ways. I mean, there's fascinating parallels. 
there's, there's fascinating a, contrast. There's an alternate version of history where HBO buys Netflix right, and they considered it but didn't. Yeah, and all the dance between the two companies back and forth and, you know, moving from, you know, really during the DVD era where they were essentially good business partners. They were doing a lot of business together happily. And then the point at which, you know, HBO decided, well, we're not going to license our shows to you for your streaming service. We've been happily selling you DVDs for your DVD by mail service. But, you know, we're not going to do that for license. You know, we're not going to do that for the streaming world. And then Netflix kind of having this reckoning, well, if HBO is not going to give us their content, eventually everybody's going to start clawing them back. And we really better start thinking about making our own stuff. Right. And Netflix specifically says we want to become HBO. And for yeah. a couple of years, it seemed like they were going to be a sort of another version of HBO. Now yeah. there's something very yeah. different. It's interesting to go back and look at that first wave of original programming from Netflix too, and how many parallels there are with HBO. I mean, Lilyhammer, which starred Stephen Von Sant, who was you know, playing a mafioso character very if, much. If the reason that name does not sound familiar <laughs> to you, it's because it, it came from the prehistory of Netflix's attempt to get an original content, which right. they don't usually talk about right. as a joke. But yeah. it did exist. They it did. did. And it was kind of a test before House of Cards. And you know, also in that time, Orange is the New Black, which was a prison show. One of HBO's first original dramas was Oz, which was also set in a prison. House of Cards was a show that HBO couldn't buy. They tried to buy for a pilot, you know, pick up at a pilot level. And, uh, you know, Netflix swooped in and offered to buy two seasons uh, for an astounding amount of money. So there are all these amazing parallels. And I think that contrast um, we really dig into in the book. Um, let's go back a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go back 50 years. Yep. HBO will turn 50 years in November <laughs> right. when this book comes out. Remind us of what TV looked like in 1972 when HBO launched. And what did HBO look like when it launched? When it launched, you were talking about a three-network world. So there was ABC, NBC, CBS. It wasn't even Fox at that point. All There's delivered free to anyone who had an antenna, which right. is everyone who had a TV. And I guess there was PBS. Um, but, you know, HBO started in the 1970s. It was a spec in the Time Inc. empire, basically. They were diversifying into video. And there was this idea that, you know, the cable world was just starting out and there were parts of the country that couldn't get good broadcast signals. And there was this idea, what if we use this new technology of cable television to deliver a channel? Because originally cable TV, like you just said, was meant to deliver stuff to people like in the mountains and the yeah, Rockies yeah. Uh, where you couldn't get a signal right. or in Manhattan right. where it was hard to get us. Because, you, again, you were relying on something to reach your television yes. antenna. Yes. And the idea with the HBO was like, well, instead of just delivering the stuff they can already get for free, why don't we try selling them something? Right. And the idea initially was like, you know, we'll sell you uh, Hollywood movies without commercials. This is before the VCR, so that was very appealing to people. Um, you know, and it was a very out there idea. It was tiny for the first couple of years. It looked like it was going to fail for, you know, the first several years of its existence. It was not getting any traction. There was really no way to get HBO across country um, in the early years. And it is kind of remarkable when you go back and look at it that this thing grew into this huge cultural juggernaut. And what was the thing that got them over the hump? What was was it a content thing? Was it tech? Was it both? It was technology. It was they were basically about to die and they decided to make this gamble to make the leap onto satellite. And in many ways, when you look back at it, it's very reminiscent of Netflix deciding to make the jump into streaming. Because by jumping onto satellites, suddenly HBO could beam a signal to anyone with a satellite receiver across the United States. And that leap turned out to be incredibly impactful because suddenly it was the first nationally distributed cable network. And they decided to split the revenues with the cable distributors. So if you were willing to go out and buy a satellite receiver, pull down the signal from HBO, you know, charge $8 a month to a customer to show them movies in their house, you would get to keep four of those dollars and four would go back to HBO. 
I remember as a kid going on road trips, you'd see free HBO advertised mm-hmm. at basically any motel. It was a big yeah. sales point. A little around the same time, there were a couple kids I knew who had access to cable and HBO. And that meant if you went over to their house for a sleepover and you waited for their parents to fall asleep, you could see a movie with some boobs. Oh, yeah. Porky's was a mm-hmm. big deal, yep. I remember. For people who were subscribing to HBO, which mm-hmm. did not include my parents, what was the selling point? Where, what were people paying for? They were paying for movies, basically. I mean, there was other programming that they put on there. It was kind of a grab bag in the early days of anything that wasn't already scooped up by the broadcast networks. So there was, you know, sports from Madison Square Garden that were like, I don't gymnastic competitions or like whatever. And and a lot of it was since HBO was in New York and it was part of Time Inc. It was kind of like a grab bag of early, of of like stuff around New York that wasn't being broadcast on television. So theater performances, music concerts, stand-up comedy. Um, And HBO, you have to remember, stood for the home box office. So the idea was also like, let's Put on and again, just to remind some people, a box office is the thing in the old days that you would go up to to buy a movie ticket before you yeah. went into the theater. So it was anything you would have to buy a ticket for in real life, you could see at the house. Music concert, you know, comedy performance, uh, you know, a, a sports per- game. And that was basically it. But really what people wanted, what was popular, what people really loved was seeing movies without commercials in their house. So – you can you can see the parallels to where we are today, right? Yes. Where there's this ongoing. We can talk about Adam Aaron and, and AMC in a bit, but right. but where there's this, you know, what is the what's the future of the movie theater? This is the beginning of mm-hmm. that shift where yeah. you didn't have to go, you didn't have to leave your house to see the exact same movie that you could see in a theater months later. You right. couldn't see it immediately. And the 70s, you know, 70s, late 70s, the service starts taking off. The first real big, huge problem they run into is that once it starts becoming successful, all of the Hollywood studios look at them and they say, wait a minute, you're just making a bunch of money by taking our product and delivering it in a new way. Why don't we do that? What's stopping us? Let's cut out the middleman. And so they tried to launch a competitive service. So another parallel to what's happening now. Very much, again, like what happened with Netflix. And HBO was able to beat that down in court on antitrust grounds. But it did turn up the pressure a lot where they, too, realized, like, at some point, we're going to need to rely less on the studios for their movies. And we're going to have to give, you know, customers something else that they really want. You mentioned peak HBO being sort of late 90s, 2000s, we're thinking of The Sopranos, mm-hmm. Sex and the City. Prior to that, what was so, – but prior to that, HBO still had cachet. It was still mm-hmm. something that if you had a certain amount of money, yep. you got and or if you were interested in boxing, yeah. you got sort of – what tipped it some sort of – interesting thing that delivered movies into th- something that was bigger than just getting old movies. It was an evolution of different things that happened, but one of the really huge important changes in HBO's history, which I was unaware of before I worked on this book, was the transition from what we talked about, the home box office events, one-off events, boxing, comedy performances, musical performances, in the early days, they were very resistant to doing series because the thought was like, well, you know, the broadcast networks are already giving away that for free. They have a ton of money. They have a ton of reach. We can't really compete with them head on. So let's not do series. They dabbled in it a little bit, but they didn't really invest in it heavily. And then there was this huge important change that happened in the mid-90s where basically they decided, you know what, as great as these one-off events are, Someone comes in and they want to see Jerry Seinfeld on Broadway do a performance. So they want to see um, Dolly Parton perform in London. That's great, but it doesn't keep them around. And they can cancel at any time. We really need to start bringing people back week after week after week. And so they finally made the decision, okay, let's start doing series. And let's start doing series in a real way. And who's in charge of that? push in that's the 90s right yeah mid 90s there was a big executive change in 1995 because michael fuchs who was overseeing original program and really in charge of hbo's programming strategy throughout the 80s and the first half of the 90s he leaves in 1995 and he's what we call a colorful character he is a very colorful guy and 
he had been really the one who resisted going into series. And when he left, he was replaced by Chris Albrecht, who really wanted to do series. And he had been actually prior to uh, Michael Fuchs leaving, they had set up HBO Independent Productions, which was basically a little mini studio within HBO that was creating TV series and then selling it to the broadcast networks. They created, you know, Martin, Down the Shore, Rock. They sold a bunch of shows to Fox, um, but they weren't appearing on HBO. And once Michael Fuchs left and Chris Albrecht took over, that was when they were like, okay, let's start making series for real and let's really do this in a major way. And I will also say the other thing that happened was not just the change in the executives, but there was also another technology shift that was happening, which I think people often overlook, and it's so important to understand HBO how important this was, was the arrival of DVDs in the late 90s and the early 2000s, because that gave HBO a huge second revenue stream that they could count on if they made successful programming, if they made successful series, they knew they could then sell those DVDs. And that ended and up- And also a th- a, a, a starts to erode some of their business though, right? The idea of getting movies delivered to your home is less exotic in an era of blockbuster and then eventually yeah. DVDs priced at $20 or yeah. less that you could just own. You, yeah. Matrix was a really big deal, if I remember correctly. Yes, and it kind of put a, a – there was a ticking clock on you know um, HBO having to make things that were so good that you would, you would go and show up and keep paying for your cable service and keep paying that additional HBO fee. But you know, if you look at the early HBO series, one thing that stands out – and I went back and watched a lot of those shows. They look so cheap. They are so – like the production values mm-hmm. are so bad, and even shows that were pretty critically admired, like Tanner '88, even the Larry Sanders show, which was like a beloved show. Yep. You know, those was, are both supposed to be mockumentaries, so they're not supposed to be high, right? High, high, high production value. Yeah, I, I'd say so. they both hold up really well. They but. do really hold up really well, but there was sort of like a limited category that HBO yeah. could do if you wanted to make dramas. If you wanted to do anything in the realm of science fiction, you would really have to start spending money. So that was the other really crucial decision, which happened, again, in that same time frame, late 1990s, From the Earth to the Moon, which was a a series uh, Brian Grazer produced, uh, Tom Hanks. And that was kind of a turning point in how HBO spent money on productions, because basically those guys were coming from the feature film world, and they're like... If we're going to do TV, yeah. you better really lay it out for yeah. us. Not just you, pay us a lot, but like make a movie. Make it look good. Spend money on special effects. Like it has to hold up. It has to look real. And to do that, you're not going to be able to cheap out like you've done in the past. You're going to have to put money into this production. And so, you know, this was kind of a moment where they're like, well, are we going to do that? And, you know, Chris Albrecht went to Jeff Bucus, you know, who, who was there like, you know, about the financials. Are we going to spend this kind of money? And they decided, you know, yeah, we're going to start spending more money, put more money on the screen. And the question is, where are we going to make that money up in the back end? And where that ends up coming from is DVDs. And because of that, they were able to get extra money coming in. And if you look at that progression in the late 90s, it's a pretty incredible run because it's basically Oz... Sex and the City, Sopranos, Six Feet Under. They have this incredible run. And all of that I don't think would have been possible. They hadn't made the decision. You know, I mean, The Sopranos is a great example. You know, David Chase was very adamant that he wanted to go out and, you know, shoot uh, in the field. He wanted to do scenes in New Jersey. He wanted to be on location. He didn't want it to be in a studio and then have a couple exterior shots. Much more expensive to do it that way. And HBO said, you know what, this is the business we're in now. And they allowed him to do that. And, and this it, is all, most of this then is still hatched under Chris Albrecht, was the executive. You know, I think I misspoke before. Chris Albrecht at that point was overseeing all the programming, uh, and Jeff Bukas was the CEO. So Bukas uh, became CEO when Michael Fuchs left. So Chris Albrecht was was the sort of creative head. He was the creative head. And yeah. um, he leaves. He ends up running Stars mm-hmm. for a while. Yep. 
He was at Lionsgate mm-hmm. um, in advance of your book coming mm-hmm. out. He was suspended. Yep. Um, explain the story there. The story there is that in 2007, uh, Chris Albrecht, who at that point was the CEO of HBO, uh, was arrested uh, outside of the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. And uh, he was arrested for assaulting his then girlfriend. And a couple days later, the LA Times came out with the story that in 1991, Chris Albrecht had allegedly assaulted one of his co-workers uh, in the HBO offices in Los Angeles. This was a woman who uh, reported to him directly, who was on his team. They'd had an affair and they'd broken up and he attacked her in the offices. And this had never come out publicly before. Um, and uh, Sasha Emerson, who was the woman uh, he attacked, uh, left the network with a settlement. And uh, when that piece of news came out, it was like, okay, wow. They fired Chris Albrecht. He, he left HBO. It created a huge crisis. This is a 2007. Um, this is well before Me Too. It is. But still an era where you can't attack people in right. the office right. and in public. Right. And in, well, it's more difficult to hold your job at that point. Yeah. And so, you know, this was all been reported. And when we, you know, sat down to write this book, when we got to that portion of the reporting, you know, we felt it was important to go back. And, you know, one of the questions I always had was like, who was this woman, Sasha Emerson? How did she come to HBO? What happened to her afterwards? What was the culture of HBO that allowed um, Chris Albrecht to stay? Uh, What was the culture of the industry at the time? And I think that's the story we spent a lot of time reporting. And I think when you read it in its totality in 2022, it looks very different than it did in the pre-Me Too era. Um, And I think hopefully that will resonate with people. And so, but I'm a little confused Mm -hmm. because I I read the book and Mm -hmm. I read the, I think the Hollywood Reporter was the first outlet to sort of talk about what Mm -hmm. was in the book. Yeah. is there new information that that came out that would give Lionsgate reason to suspend Chris Albrecht now, or is it just um, that they're uncomfortable having someone who's who's whose past is being reexamined? I can only speculate because I haven't spoken to them about that decision. They haven't really said too much about it publicly. Um, my guess is it's the entire context um, and seeing these events and then being uncomfortable with that. And more broadly, one of the things you guys do spend a lot of time on in the book is talking about the culture of HBO and the mm-hmm. fact that it was a boys' club and most almost all of Hollywood right. was and still really is. Mm-hmm. Was there something unique about the atmosphere at HBO compared to other places? Very in terms much of so. how it treated women. Yeah, I think again, you sort of know that if you go back and write about fifty years of Hollywood, there's going to be sexism, right? And there's one thing to know that in theory, but to see it in the particulars is pretty interesting and shocking in some ways. And I think at HBO, what was really interesting is that, you know, because HBO had this idea in the early days that they were going to do things differently than network television, there was an idea that Michael Fuchs had when he was uh, overseeing programming. He said, you know, the broadcast networks, they really, they're advertising supported. The advertisers want to reach women and households. And so commercial television, it's kind of slanted towards women and slanted towards female viewers and we're not going to compete with them head on so we're going to do something differently and part of what we're going to do differently is we're going to cater to men and there was always also this belief and this saying among hbo executives at the time that it was the man who controlled the remote and it was the man who paid the cable bill and all of these things kind of added up to okay we're going to create a service that caters to male viewers which is in part why you had these risque late-night documentaries. It's in part why you had adult sitcoms where there was a lot of female nudity. Dream On is kind of like a classic example of that. They used to have a code name for female nudity that uh, they called a Cable Edge. So if you were writing a script for HBO, you it's might get very a much note resonated back. with 13-year-olds <laughs> around the world. Yeah, this, um, you uh, knew, again, pre-internet. Mm-hmm. You know, this is one of the ways you could get nudity. Yes. Um, in your house. Yes. And, you know, they would send back scripts. Yeah, this looks great, but it needs more cable edge. And the other way it impacted what was going on inside the network was that 
you know, you think back to the 80s and one thing that HBO was doing really well is there was this pipeline of comedians that were always coming through and doing uh, the routines on HBO. HBO kind of dominated the comedy, stand-up comedy space at that time. And in network television, there was this trend also at the time of taking stand-up comedians and building sitcoms around them. And Everyone wanted to create the new Seinfeld. Exactly. That was the apotheosis of that format. And so inside of HBO, you know, we interview uh, an executive, Susie Fitzgerald, who was, you know, working on stand-up comedy at the time. And she was pushing really hard. Let's get, make sure we have lots of female comics coming through. And they were getting lots of top female comics. And at some point, Susie Fitzgerald was saying, well, why don't we take one of these female comics? We don't have a lot of uh, female perspective in our programming slate. Like, why don't we do build a sitcom? You know, Roseanne's coming through. She's doing her stand-up comic. Like, why don't we build a show around her? And those kind of ideas at the time met a lot of resistance in the form of, nope, like, we're here for the men. Like, this this is like a, a, a service for men. And it really impacted what was shown on screen. Um, and continue to in a way that was really fascinating to me because those ideas, which were very explicit in HBO's early days, at some point they stopped explicitly saying those things. They stopped saying the man controls the remote. They stopped saying the man pays the cable bill. They stopped uh, using the term cable edge. But those roots were still there. And in some ways, they continue on in ways that I think even people that – have been contributors to the network years later, years down the line, and they feel like something is not quite right. Why is it, you know, that, you know, um, for instance, Cynthia Mort, who created uh, Tell Me You Love Me, which was a drama that appeared on HBO in 2007. She's one of the few women who's ever created an hour-long drama for HBO. Her experience is, I think, echoed by a lot of women that you talk to, which is that even after those ideas were explicit, that were a network for men, they still kind of felt it in certain ways, you know, felt like they did not receive the same sort of institutional support as, you know, the classic HBO auteur, which nothing against those creators, very talented people, but you look at the roster and you can name them offhand because HBO did such an incredible job of promoting the show creators. You know, David Simon, David Milch. David Chase. David Chase, right? They're all men. And that, again, was never really explicit, but it was in there. It's lurking in there. And I think it was one of the things that working on this book was kind of revelatory to me. HBO eventually becomes the most important thing in what was then called Time Warner. Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways, intentionally uh, so, because Jeff Bucus, who was running it, sort of sloughed off everything else. Yep. The AOL, there'd been disastrous AOL merger. They unwound that. They got rid of it. And they're basically left with there's also Warner Bros. Studios and there's Turner, but really is HBO. That's the reason mm -hmm. why uh, AT&T buys it because they want to have their own version of Netflix. They spend more right. than $100 billion on debt. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2016, the deal finally happens when you start writing the book. Comes 2021, they decide, nope, we don't want it after all. I've asked everyone who comes here and talks to me about right. this business. I still don't have a fully satisfying answer. Yeah. What light bulb went on within AT&T and said, oh, we've made a terrible mistake. It's time to unwind it. I don't think there was a eureka moment, if that's what you're looking for. I think it was the accumulation of a lot of things that took place from 2006 to 2000, 2016 to 2021, uh, starting with the DOJ uh, contesting the deal, which put HBO and all of Time Warner into this purgatory for a year and a half at an incredibly crucial time in streaming. And they were behind to begin with. They because got this, is when every, this is when everyone else who's not Netflix decides they also want to yes. become Netflix and they start ramping up their own business. Yes. This is when Disney says we're done right. giving Netflix our stuff, we're building our own stuff. Right. And everyone who was ignoring Netflix, who by the way included Time Warner, yep. says now that is the new model, right. we're going that way. Right. And uh, Time Warner has to sit on the sidelines for two years. Right. And then by the time they get moving, 
it's not that long before the pandemic hits. And they're trying to roll out this, you know, Netflix competitor, which becomes HBO Max. That also gets disrupted by the pandemic and the inability. They had, you know, friends reunion that they wanted to do that were launched. They didn't really have anything at launch, right? Uh, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to say, well, how could you not have a Game of Thrones sequel ready for the launch? Something big, some big ticket. The launch really did not go well. So add that to the list of things that are going on. And also AT&T, they have all these other problems that pop up during that time frame. One is, you know, the direct TV acquisition, which they made prior to Time Warner, which was disastrous, right? Which was not going well. Uh, they're hemorrhaging customers on that side. They have to spend all this money on 5G and the 5G rollout. That's not really proven to be like a huge uh, game changer on the consumer end. Um, and, you know, they have the dividend they have to pay out and their core business, just the wireless business, they're also under pressure because there's mergers happening in that world too. So you I put, still find all of that incredibly unsatisfying. But then on top of that, like, you know, I think back to, you know, Jesse Armstrong, the creator of Succession, who we interview for the book, you know, he's fascinating to talk about merger deals and acquisitions. And he's always talking about, well, yeah, you know, they kind of, you know, you read all these books about media deals and media mergers, and they always rationalize the deal when it's happening. And then five years later, when they unwind it, they rationalize again why the new thing makes sense and the old thing didn't. And his point is like, it always just comes down to ego and opportunity. And I think at some point, with AT&T, the opportunity arose to get out of this thing, which they needed to get out of, and they desperately wanted to get out of. It was really a miserable experience for all those guys. And they happened to get a call from David Zaslav, and he's at Discover, and he's chomping at the bit to, to get in there and get put these assets together. We, in the book we report, you know, he had gone in previously prior to launching Discovery Plus. He had gone in and met with Stanky and the Time Warner team and or Warner Media team at that point and said, yeah, we should really team up and like, you know, I have all this great he's low cost. He's got a cost. whole speech that he's relayed for years about swimming to the other side of the yeah, lake. Yeah, the lake thing. They're going to swim together, yeah. whatever. They, they won't drown, you know. And so he'd been pitching that. And I think the first time around, Stanky was still thinking, nah, this is going to work out. You know, we're still going to, we have all these incredible movie and TV assets in our library. He also wasn't running the company at that point, right? Right. And and so then and then I think at the, but then I think the second time around, the, you know, you fast forward another two years and this thing is just not going well. The all the synergies that they sold the yep. deal on are not really materializing in any real way. And the time frame and the cost, and then you look at where, you know, it, it's becoming clear by 2020, 2021 that the domestic market for these services is becoming pretty much saturated and the competition is just rising. You have Discovery, you have um, Disney Plus, yep. you have Paramount, Paramount you have all these other yep. services, Peacock. And then the competition is going to shift overseas where HBO has no brand recognition and you're going to have to do that whole thing, which is going to be enormously expensive and complicated. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. And we're back. The thing that confused me about all of that was 
almost all of that was foreseeable and it's yes. all stuff that people like you and I mm-hmm. thought about and talked yep. about and reported when the initial deal was done that this is going to cost a lot of money mm-hmm. to keep up with Netflix and then how is the phone company going to do that because they did have a dividend and they were going to have to spend money on 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 satellites right. etc and so the idea that they they were surprised by that always flummoxes me. Yeah. I think the two the two best arguments are one the old CEO did the deal Randall Stevenson right. was no longer there. Yes. John Stanky who supported the deal the whole way through could then say oh this was never my deal. Right. It's the other guy's yeah. deal. Guy Blame him. And the clearest argument frankly is is one John Stanky has said out loud which is we bought this thing so Wall Street would boost our stock because right. we would own a Netflix. And they didn't get it. We never got it. And yeah. this was still when Netflix was a high-flying right. stock. So if you're not going to reward us for owning this thing, right. fuck it. What's the point? Yeah. That's basically what yeah. he said. I think that's right. So now we're now we're up now we're up to Discovery as right. the new owner. Again, lots of lots of uh, every time HBO is either considered as an asset or 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 is acquired, there's a lot of questions about what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we just went through a round of that this summer yep. when, when, you know, it wasn't HBO specific, but shows were canceled, et yep. cetera. I don't believe that there's any drop off in, in sort of what we used to consider sort of the core HBO Not product, right. brand, et cetera. Yeah. All the worries that the phone company would screw it up. Right. Or now that the reality TV guys right. from, from Virginia or yeah. sorry, Maryland were going to screw it up. It seems incredibly resistant to being screwed up, which is a hard yeah. – which is not something you can say about most assets. Is there right. something about the DNA or is it about leadership or is it just they haven't had time to screw it up yet? I think it, you know, if you look back at HBO's history, they've survived so many things. You know, They survived the attack from the studios. They survived the VCR. They survived the AOL Time Warner acquisition. They survived AT&T. And why is that? And I agree. 2021 was an incredible year for HBO proper, right? They had all these shows. They just racked up, you know, most Emmy wins. And I think the reason for that is that the leadership and the team in place has all of its roots in HBO history. Casey Bloys, who oversees programming for HBO, HBO Max, he came through the ranks. He put his time in uh, in the development. And re-upped his deal last year under the right. new ownership. Yeah, and you look at his team and it's, you know, in some ways it reminds me of like a Japanese gaming company like you know I did a story about Nintendo years ago and it was all about the you know master and apprentices and passing down the knowledge and then pushing it forward and in some ways HBO reminds me of that that all these people that are overseeing the important programming decisions at HBO have been there for years have been learning the HBO playbook and improving it over time I mean documentaries you lose Sheila Nevins who's like a legend you know she leaves um, and then, you know, Lisa Heller and um, uh, Nancy Abraham, who take over, have been there learning and they've been doing an incredible job and they've been pushing HBO into the, you know, a different evolution that's more focused on docu-series, that's more focused on famous people. It's less about, you know, fringe culture than it used to be in the old HBO model. And you could go down the line and look in drama, comedy and those, all the, those division heads have been there and been learning for a long time. And I think that's what's saved HBO and that, the, you know, HBO, the thing they do really well is the same thing they've been doing really well since the mid-90s, which again was like, we can't compete with the broadcast networks when we get into series. And how are we going, to, what can we offer these show creators that they can't have. We can't offer them the same amount of money. We can't offer them, you know, the same huge audience, but we can offer them. And the thing they realize is we can offer them the kind of creative freedom that they could never get anywhere else. And we're going to work with seasoned TV showrunners and creators that have spent years in the broadcast television ecosystem banging their heads up against the rules of television, banging their heads up against the standards department, getting endless notes from executives saying, you know, spell out the subtext, make the characters more likable, and are frustrated with it. Let's give them the opportunity to create television without all of that interference. And that led to people like Tom Fontana, who created Oz. He'd made Homicide for NBC. Uh, Darren Starr, who created Sex and the City for HBO. He you know done Melrose Place and uh, you know, 90210 on broadcast television was sick of it. He thought of 
you know, Sex in the City is almost like an indie project. Alan Ball, who came from broadcast television, creates Six Feet Under. And you go, you know, David Chase worked in broadcast television, comes over and creates The Sopranos. So I think the idea of giving these seasoned television creators freedom and support and uh, allowing them to pursue their visions and being willing to do things that are based on a lot of instinct and experience and not really worrying about is are there any signals in the market we should be looking for that would point towards what the next big thing is? I mean, HBO never had any consumer data because they were always a wholesaler. So they could never rely on, oh, what do, what do our viewers want? We have no idea. We're going to create things based this is one on of the reasons that like getting buzz and sort of courting the press in New York and L.A. was – Important, not just for ego reasons, but mm -hmm. that's how, how the people are going to learn about these yeah, shows. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, um, you know, because we live kind of in this world now where you think, well, whoever has the best data and the best information on their consumers is going to have a huge advantage. And I think the thing about HBO is they've developed this alternate method that's proven incredibly powerful for t over time. It's funny. The data story, like Netflix leaned into that when they first launched. Like, mm -hmm. oh, we're going to be able to figure out exactly what you – and then they yeah. kind of stopped talking about yeah. it. And now they don't like that story right. that much because it reflects negatively on them. Yeah. And depending on who you talk to who works with them, they right. have different perspectives right. on it. Um, this was the record scratch year in, in streaming and, and peak TV where mm -hmm. everyone said, oh – Wall Street's no longer rewarding us for right. growing without profits. Netflix has lost subscribers. And everyone said, all right, we're this all this crazy spending we're doing, we're still gonna do it. Yeah. But we're gonna stop accelerating the yeah. spending. HBO Casey Bloys has insisted that uh, they're, that's they're not losing any money at HBO. They're, right. they're not they're not losing any budget. But from people I've talked to, they're still going to find some corners here and there, and yeah. maybe that expensive set piece doesn't have to be in that show, right. particularly if it's not the kind of show that's going to travel internationally. Yeah. Do you feel like inevitably sort of the the realignment, resetting of expectations is going to affect what HBO can put out? Or do you imagine they'll be just as well positioned as they were for the last 50 years? I think it's an open question, and I wonder about that in the sense of across the streaming universe. I mean, this fall, you really saw kind of the blockbuster streaming products because you had House of the Dragon on HBO, you had the Lord of the Rings series on Amazon, you had Sandman on Netflix, you had She-Hulk on uh, Disney+, Plus. these hugely expensive shows. And what I wonder about is if those are all pretty successful, which they've had a pretty good track record so far, do you start seeing in that streaming world what we've seen in the theatrical world for the past 20 years, which was like, well, the movies that do well are all sci-fi and, you know, based on comic books, existing IP, you can, you know, get these huge audiences. And, and over time, cutting back on kind of those middle projects, the indie projects, the smaller budget projects, there the stories adult projects. about media empires that were really, <laughs> I thought, really made for like you and me and a couple thousand right. people, um, which are at least the version they're doing is enormously expensive to do because they're flying yeah. all over the world right. and hanging out in right. expensive yachts. This is succession we're talking yeah. about. And whether they might say, well, you don't have to go to Italy right. for that season. Yeah. Right? And so you wonder like over time, will that cut back on that kind of programming within HBO. I don't see any signs of that yet. But. So in theory, the most fearsome competitors for for HBO, WarnerMedia now, maybe Netflix, but really it should be Apple and Amazon because mm -hmm. they're not constrained by budgets. Right. They can essentially spend as much as they want. Yeah. The budget for the, the Lord of the Rings show, people debate, but it's a very expensive show. They're yeah. probably spending a billion dollars yeah. At least, mm -hmm. um, not just for one season, but multiple seasons. It's right. a lot of money. Right. Apple, again, we don't know what they're spending because it right. doesn't matter to them, but yeah. they have unlimited resources, essentially. Is that a real challenge? Has that has that challenge manifested so far for HBO? Are they seeing the effect? Of, are they a, not getting shows they wanted? It is a huge, it's a hugely, it's a huge change because for much of HBO's golden years, they were able to outspend everybody else. And it's a big competitive advantage um, when you can sort of nonchalantly decide we're going to spend $100 million on a show like Band of Brothers. And that was an advantage for 
HBO for many years, I think that kind of flipped at some point because of Netflix. I mean, it started with House of Cards where, you know, and Netflix, you know, was... Where Netflix says we're going to spend a hundred million, we're going to commit to spending a hundred million dollars for two seasons for a show that we haven't seen a pilot for. Right. And you have to think about the paradigm of tech investing during that whole time where it was like, yeah, we care about growth. Just keep adding subscribers. We're not going to worry about profits. We don't care about that. As long as you're eating up market shares, as long as you're, you know, crushing the incumbents, like we'll keep shooting your share price up. And that was a huge advantage for Netflix. And you look at something like stand-up comedy where they essentially said, oh, Chris Rock, like you've been the face of HBO comedy for decades. Like, how about we give you $20 million to come and do And by the way, we're also going to supersize 100 comics you haven't heard of. Yeah. And they're and all going to Yeah, we're just going to hire – we're just going to buy the entire field out from uh, HBO. And I think at, at some point HBO could not operate in that same realm. But I think that they've been kind of in that mindset for – a handful of years, I think they've adjusted a little bit to not just being able to outspend people. Um, and that's good because Amazon's going up against them. Apple, everyone has more money. It's simplistic, but I'll do it anyway. Um, Lord of the Rings. What, I'm sorry. What, what's the House ring? of the Dragon? No. House of the Dragon the went up against power. The, the, the Tolkien thing <laughs> went up against the, 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 the R.R. Thing. Martin thing. <laughs> it seems like buzz-wise that the HBO show has more legs than the Amazon one. Tellingly, perhaps, uh, Amazon has not put out numbers yeah. and they love to create numbers for anything they can um, about about their ring of power. Yeah. Show, show right. Um, they have put out numbers saying that uh, the NFL, which they're spending a billion dollars a year to mm -hmm. show a game, a shitty game once a week, they yeah. said is their best, is their best, uh, basically brought in more prime yep. customers and in 24 hours than anything else. So are we left to conclude that, that the Tolkien thing has not been successful for them? I think it's been successful because it's given them buzz and that's what they need. They don't really need uh, the profits from that either. You don't think Jeff Bezos is standing there saying this is not successful enough. We're still losing to HBO. I wanted another. I wanted a Game of Thrones and you guys didn't give me one yet. Right. And you're losing to the thing I wanted. I think that will impact them a little bit. But I think also on the flip side, what's really interesting to me about this competition from the HBO perspective is it is an optimistic sign for HBO that the House of the Dragon has done so well in a broader sense, because one of the tricks that HBO has never been able to do is to take those hit shows and expand them in any real good way. I mean, you think back like Sex and the City, they made the movies, which were you know commercially successful, but kind of critically not as original or innovative as yeah. the series. Um, you think about the Entourage movie, which is basically – a disaster. They've not created cinematic universes no, in the way no, that, they've that Disney struggled. has. Yeah, they've really DC struggled. Has less and that's clearly an important part of this new world is once you have a hit show, can you figure out new iterations of it that will be successful? And I think that's what's so positive in a broader sense for HBO that this series has done well because it's really the first time that they've been able to take a show and do a second version of it. Um, and they're, you know, they're going to try it again and again. I mean, it's like the Many Saints of Newark, you know, the Sopranos movie, you have uh, Sex in the City. Yeah, exactly. That didn't work out so well. The uh, And just like that, which is the Sex in the City uh, sequel, they're, they're clearly, they need to master that skill for this next era. They believe um, they need to master that skill. I'd argue that, you know what, there's plenty of places that will make <laughs> crappy extensions of, right. of IP. Why don't you yeah. guys just be in the version of right. showing us something we haven't seen right. before? And they are going to keep doing that. And I think that's their bread and butter. But I think, like I said before, the idea of the apprentice master thing where you take the old school playbook and keep pushing it forward. I think they are very good at finding these original series that come out of nowhere like Succession that you think nobody would want to watch and turns into a big critical popular hit. But yeah, the ability to add on to that, to keep things going, breathe new life into them, it's the thing that Disney has done so masterfully um, you know, forever. Uh, if they can add that to their playbook, I think they'll be really well positioned. Um, and I think that's going to be incredibly important, especially in this next phase where you're going to have to go into other cultures and you're going to have to go into overseas markets. And 
that was the other thing I found fascinating that I really did not realize about HBO because I'm such a provincial American person. I didn't realize how little the HBO brand man means overseas. Um, and the reason for that is because – Oftentimes you're not even told it's HBO, right? Yeah, exactly because everything they did – for 50 years was about building up the HBO brand. It was all about HBO in the United States. It was all about the thing and the hotel billboard. It was all about, you know, knowing it was HBO, what HBO stood for, premium content, something you would pay extra for. Overseas, they did the exact opposite thing, which is they decided, you know what, we're going to spend all this money on, you know, from the earth to the moon. One way we can make back that money is by taking these shows that we're creating and just licensing them out to the top bidder in these foreign markets. And it turns out there was a huge market once they started having shows like The Sopranos and once they had you know shows like Game of Thrones, there was an immense amount of but money. But you're watching it on your local satellite or cable. Yeah, you're getting – they're licensing. You're seeing it through Sky. You have no appreciation that it somehow came from this HBO. And so that's another deficit that they're going to have to make up uh, in this coming era. And I think Netflix has been doing the opposite, right? They've been building their brand overseas. They've been putting the investment in. Really expensive to go into some of these markets, to having to – you know set up offices, deal with infrastructure, deal with local politics, deal with relationships with the incumbent players. But you start seeing five, 10 years into those investments, you know, you start seeing what's happening in South Korea for Netflix, where they paid their dues. And now they're getting this incredible content that comes back and is, you know, turns into hits around the world. They're so far ahead of um, where HBO is in that sense. And I think that's another one of those things that's going to be a huge challenge for Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, and I think that's why I said like the sequel, you know, being able to create sequels is important because there is an audience for Game of Thrones out there around the world. And the challenge now is like, can you start creating these additional sequels and series and somehow make them associate that with your brand. The problem, of course, is that it's all based on HBO Max, which they've now invested several years of branding into, and they're probably going to have to change that name. Um, Just you go know. back to calling it HBO, maybe. People will <laughs> like it. Yeah. Felix Gillette, your book, which you wrote with John Colbin, is called It's Not TV. Obviously, it's for people who listen to this show. Because um, we talk about this company mm -hmm. every other week. Yep. Thank you for writing it. Yeah, my Thanks for coming in. Thanks to Jelani for producing and editing. Thanks to our sponsors who bring us this show for free. I think this is one of two shows you get to hear from us this week, and that's because our sponsors are helping us bring it to you. This is Recode Media. We'll see you soon. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder. But you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.